Good morning, Mace Road Church. Uh, like Ryan said, we welcome you to the table. Uh, it's a joyful holiday weekend to be here with you all. So, if you guys have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Psalm 131. That's where we'll find our text for this morning. What does it take to be great? As I say that, you might have a couple things starting to go through your mind. Maybe it's that extraordinary skill or expertise in a certain discipline. Maybe it's a wide-reaching uh, network of people from across the globe that you're able to be connected with. Maybe it's a limitless stream of cash. If you're that person, let me know. I'd like to become friends with you. In 2001, Jim Collins uh, wrote his famous book, a business book called Good to Great. Jim Collins was trying to answer the question, can good companies or corporations become great companies or corporations? And if so, how do they do it? Jim and his team of researchers spent several years watching and interviewing people from 11 different corporations that had already made the leap from being good companies to being great companies. Mr. Collins once gave a talk several years later where he shared the two specific character qualities shared by these CEOs of these good to great companies. The first was no surprise to these people. These men and women possessed incredible professional will. They were driven. They were willing to endure anything it took to make their company or their venture a success. Obviously, they put in the time and effort necessary. They were wired to work hard. The second trait was not something that the researchers or Mr. Collins was expecting to find in these uh, top CEOs of these companies. The second trait was that these leaders were self-effacing and modest. They consistently pointed to the contribution of others and didn't like drawing attention to themselves. These CEOs were described as quiet, humble, reserved, gracious, mild-mannered, and understated. Would people today say these things about you? Would your wife or your husband use the words humble and gracious to describe you? Would your coworkers, roommates, or your family members notice you as quiet, reserved, and a steady person who doesn't really get caught up in the stormy circumstances of life? In Psalm 131, King David teaches us what a Christian should and shouldn't do to be great in growing in godliness and contentment. He proclaims by his experience and by his example that the calm, quiet, and humble soul is not rooted in any external circumstances, but in God, the Lord. So because we believe that God's word is a gracious gift to us in order to make us wise Christians, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me and to stand and follow along as I read Psalm 131. This is God's precious and life-giving word to us. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. O 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as needy people. People who know that we've gotten caught up in the circumstances and the situations of life this week. People who know that they've acted in pride or arrogance or presumption. Father, I pray that this morning we'd be coming, our souls ready to hear from your word what you have to say to us, what you have to instruct us about the content and humble and quiet spirit. Father, I pray that we would be able to recognize ourselves as prideful people who are pursuing humility only by God's grace. So be with us as we hear your word. Be with us as we contemplate um, the sweet the sweetness of a content soul, and the perils of a prideful and presumptuous soul. Father, we're looking to you for much grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Though this may be a shorter psalm than many we've looked at this summer, David teaches us an invaluable lesson here in these three verses. He instructs us to be content with the law which God has marked for us, to consider what he calls us to, and not to aim at fashioning our own lot. Therefore, Psalm 131 wants to help us to understand and embrace this morning this central theme. A calm and quiet soul is occupied with the Lord and his purposes. A calm and quiet soul is occupied with the Lord and his purposes. And as we begin to walk through this text, I hope you'll see these three points emerge from Psalm 131. Point one, the pull we feel. Point two, the posture we need. And point three, the practice to persist in. So let's start with point one, the pull we feel. David here begins this psalm by making a negative statement. Follow with me here. He states in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. He says right now, this is what's not happening. So we make that clear. But we all know from experience, as did David, that there are times when our hearts are lifted up. And our eyes are raised too high. This is the pull we feel as sinful human beings. Pride rises up in our hearts and our eyes start to gaze past what God has given us. The attitude of our heart is focused on ourselves, our wants, and our needs. We believe that I deserve better than what I am getting right now, don't I? That then shapes our attitude towards a person or a circumstance. And finally, our pride 
normally gives root to other sins like coldness, indifference, bitterness, and anger. The late author, Jerry Bridges, takes it a step further and noted how pride lifts one's heart up against God and contends for supremacy against him. Our friend in Louisville, C.J. Mahaney, notes in his book, Humility, that when he recognized pride in his life, this is what he learned to say. Lord, in that moment, with that attitude and that action, I was contending for supremacy with you. That's what it was all about. Forgive me. Theologically, that frames pride in its right place. And biblically, Scripture is incredibly clear about the perils of pride. In 2 Chronicles 32, we read a brief account from the end of Hezekiah's life. It says, In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord. And he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So it was because of the pride of Hezekiah's heart and his ungratefulness for what the Lord had given him, and all the, him and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem were threatened by the coming wrath of God. We're reminded in Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When we play with pride, we're on a path heading towards promised destruction. And Jesus told his disciples in the New Testament, recorded in Mark 7, says, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, understand. There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Our hearts are naturally born evil. And from our hearts comes pride, which defiles us and makes us unclean and unworthy to stand before God on our own. If you look back at Psalm 131, take note of the parts of the person that David highlights in verses 1 and 2. My heart, my eyes, my soul. I don't think it takes much to realize it's not hard connecting the dots between a loud mouth, some arrogant actions, and the pride that's probably going on in someone's heart. But what if that pride doesn't come out physically or verbally? Often, if you're like me, 
It remains internal, and it stews. Pride is almost more dangerous when it remains internal in someone's heart and soul than if it comes out with loud and boisterous words or actions. If you don't see the sin of pride in your heart and call others in to help you keep watch and to keep you accountable over that temptation, it can be a silent killer without any warning signs. It's for these reasons that David acknowledges the perils of pride in his own heart, and he declares that his heart is not lifted up. His eyes are not raised too high. He knows the temptation of pride, and he seeks to cultivate humility and contentment with the lot that God has given him. The second half of verse 1 then, the psalmist writes, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do great things. I hope you all have some goals that you're aspiring to. But within the context of this psalm, these great things refer to great activities or desires that are beyond one's abilities to carry out or to control. And the verb used here in this verse is helpful. David says he doesn't occupy himself with these great matters. He doesn't allow himself to be consumed by them. He doesn't dwell on them. He doesn't get involved with the matters that are too great for him. He realizes that these matters are far above his pay grade. Yet, without realignment to the Lord's purposes, our personal ambitions are bound to collide with the providence and sovereignty of God. You know, this might be the temptation that we all feel to know answers to the big questions of life. Once again, if you're like me, you might have some of these questions that face you every day. Maybe it's the perplexing questions about the latest promotion or recognition that your coworker received when all the signs are pointing in your direction. Maybe it's your questions lamenting that though you have a godly desire to be married and to raise a faithful family, nobody's knocking on that door or no one's answering when you do knock. Maybe it's the confusing questions regarding the brother, the sister, the family member that's torn your family relationships apart because of their sinful choices and it leaves you heartbroken without answers for what to do or what to say. Now, don't get me wrong. These questions aren't wrong to have. And they're not sinful questions. But do you find yourself dwelling on them with no hope? Does the repetition of these questions occupying your mind cause you to doubt God? If you find yourself doubting God's faithfulness towards you and His care, provision for you, Turn, repent of that lack of faith. Put, the, uh, put your hope in the Lord's purposes for you. David did not think of himself at liberty to take one step unless called to it by God. This is contrasted with the presumption of those who without any call from God hurry themselves into unwarrantable undertakings and involve themselves in matters which properly belong to others and may not yet belong to them. 
this pull and temptation of our hearts to pride, even as Christians, it's perilous. David continues in verse 2 by then describing the posture that he's committed to in light of the pull that his heart feels. So point two, the posture we need. Here in verse 2, David describes this posture by saying, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David takes action to calm and quiet his soul. There's no neutrality when it comes to the state of our souls. There's either volatility or peace, loudness or quietness, chaos or calm, turmoil or tranquility. If we believe that without any efforts, our souls are calm and quiet, like Matt said last week, we probably just haven't lived long enough yet. Naturally, our hearts are bent towards pride and presumption of things that are outside of our control or ability. Contentment is not easily obtained. It can be a painful process when you are seeking to quiet your soul. But David's example here is instructive. He realizes that he must give time to calming and quieting his soul. If he doesn't, he is in danger of the pull and the peril of pride that we just talked about. I love how the King James Version says this. Maybe some of you have the King James with you today. It reads in verse 2, Surely I have behaved and quieted myself. Our souls can be unruly when agitated or in distress. Have you been faithful to make your soul behave in these moments? We know that if we don't do this, God will see to it through means to bring us to the point where we have no other choice but to calm and quiet our souls before him in simple but secure trust. God, here I am. You've brought me to the end of my pride, presumption. We all have the opportunity right now to follow David in his example and to take the posture of a weaned child with his mother. The Psalms will use vivid imagery, as I'm sure you've seen this summer, to carry purpose and meaning for us to explore and understand. Commentator Derek Kidner unpacks the imagery here for us, saying, the child no longer frets for what it used to find indispensable. The unweaned child's frantic, looking for food from his mother's breast when they want it, to satisfy their stomach, their desires. Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs states very bluntly the aim of this discontent soul. He says, I'm discontented because I have not these things which God never yet promised me, and therefore I sin much against his gospel and against the grace of faith. On the other hand, the wean child is a picture of contentment. The child is happy and content to lay there, looking up at his mother, smiling down at him. This child's disposition isn't about his stomach and his desires, but the happiness and peace of his heart. Once again, Burroughs instructs us 
of the blessing of contentment. So be satisfied and quiet. Be contented with your contentment. I lack certain things that others have, but blessed be God, I have a contented heart which others have not. Has your soul learned a comparable lesson? Is your soul free from the nagging of self-seeking? Has your soul learned the lesson not to be ultimately disturbed by frets and fears? Jesus himself addresses the self-seeking soul in Matthew 18. He says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The soul of a child here isn't concerned with his status or position in the kingdom of heaven. The soul of the child is free from the nagging of prideful self-seeking for position and recognition. What about the disturbances of frets and fears then that we all have faced or will someday soon have to face? I've always been helped by the imagery of a ship that's out at sea for several weeks. And this ship is going along and all of a sudden a multiple day storm rolls in. There are perilous winds blowing against the masts. There are waves that are rocking the ship side to side. There's water coming overboard. And you're wondering, this ship might sink at any moment here. Have you ever thought about what in those times of a storm help keeps the ship upright? The ship has a ballast in the center of the ship that provides a central weight to keep the ship stabilized. Therefore, the rocking of the water and the waves doesn't ultimately tip the ship onto its side. It's able to stay secure and upright in the position it's in. Does your soul have a ballast? What is your assurance that keeps the ship, your life, from rocking? Is your soul steady? If you do find yourself getting tossed around by the reckless waves, recall what the prophet Jeremiah holds on to as his assurance in Lamentations 3. He says this, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When we've calmed and quieted our souls, receiving the Lord as our portion, we know that is where we need to be. A calm and contented soul is able to be present and attentive to the ways that the Lord blesses us each and every day in the ordinary and mundane things of life. 
I was struck this last week uh, by something that one of our missional community members said as we started our gathering. The beginning of every MC gathering, uh, we have a time to share evidence of God's grace, ways that we've experienced it ourselves or ways that we've seen it in others. And the youngest, or one of the youngest members of our missional community, uh, we have one family in our group, he's about four years old. Uh, Sometimes he'll share evidence of grace with us. And so when everyone found their seats and the chatter kind of died down, his mom whispered to him that it was time to share evidence of grace. And so he runs into the middle of the circle and says, guys, I saw a praying mantis this week. And obviously we all laughed and we shared a good chuckle. But then his mom and dad shared with us a little bit of the backstory of his excitement. He had recently read a book and watched a movie about insects and he was fascinated with the praying mantis. And he really, really wanted to see one in person. It just happens to be that as they were leaving High V that week, there was an employee that was standing outside the doors. And as they walked by, the mom and the two boys, this employee stopped them and said, hey, come over here. I think there's something that your boys want to see. And there it was. This man showed them a praying mantis that was sitting right there. They were all shocked, and obviously the little boy was thrilled that he got to see this bug that he really desired to see. Now the point of the illustration is this. Do you get too occupied and concerned with the big things in life that are outside of your control that you end up missing the small ways that God seeks to provide and satisfy us in our desires? Or have you calmed and quieted your soul, content with the station that the Lord's brought you to, and you're ready to be attentive to the ways that the Lord's going to remind you every day of his care for you, even through the ordinary and seemingly insignificant things? As I heard this little boy's parents share at our MC gathering, I was immediately convicted. He had so much joy and was so happy overseeing a small bug. And I could think of all the ways that I had just been complaining and presuming upon the big things that I had that week. Let's not miss out on these daily gifts, grace, provision, and care that the Lord gives to all of us by being consumed with pride, presumption over things that are much too great and marvelous for us to know. The Christian with a calm and quiet soul is content because they know that the Lord cares for them. The Lord's care is like the care of a mother. He's wise and tender towards his children. He knows us, and therefore he deals with us as our age, our weaknesses, our witlessness, and our other necessities require. The Lord knows us, friends. Let's be content. To combat this pull and temptation we feel and to develop and nurture the posture that we need, next in verse 3 is the practice that we all need to persist in. 
Here in verse 3, David clues us in on the secret to keeping a calm and quiet soul. A soul that isn't consumed by the matters too great for himself. Look at me, uh, look with me at what he says. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now this might seem abrupt to you, but realize what the psalmist is doing here. He breaks out in passionate proclamation, telling us where our hearts, our eyes, our souls should be occupied in hope. Our hope is not in things getting better. Our hope is not in receiving what we desire, no matter how godly that desire might be. Our hope is not in our position or station in life. Our hope is in the Lord. Psalm 131 is not calling us to quiet introspection or to be introspective, looking in at ourselves. That's what we come away with from the psalm this morning. We've missed the point. The thrust of Psalm 131 is to get us to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our desires, off of our needs and our wants and our ambitions, and rather to set our gaze on the Lord and His purposes. Remember who the Lord is. The people of Israel who read this psalm would have known tangibly and remembered vividly the mighty acts of the covenant-keeping Lord. It was the Lord who kept His promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, promising that they would be father of many nations that possessed the land that God was going to give them. It was the Lord who spoke to Moses through a burning bush, telling um, about the promise that he would deliver his people from their sufferings in captivity under Pharaoh. It was the Lord who was present with his people, leading them out of Egypt as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was the Lord who saved his people from the hand of the Egyptians by allowing them to walk across the Red Sea on dry land while crushing their enemies behind them. It was the Lord who filled the tabernacle with his presence for the people in the wilderness. It was the coming of the Lord that was prophesied by Isaiah that a way should be made through the wilderness for when the Lord would come to his people. And it was the Lord who came, not as a ruling king, but as a lowly infant who would grow up to be despised, hated by men. The Lord would die on a wooden cross, facing the full wrath of God for our sins and all the sins of his people. It was the joy of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who got to rush back to the eleven and they got to proclaim, it's the Lord, he's risen indeed. As Christians, we're able to calm and quiet our souls because our greatest need has been met. That need was met on a hill called Calvary where an innocent and truly humble man shed his blood so that prideful men and women like you and me could be counted innocent, freed from the punishment that we deserved for our prideful and presumptuous hearts. When we continually recount who the Lord is and what he's done for his people, that pressure we feel from the disturbances, the disruptions, and the distractions of life, they're going to begin to pale in comparison. 
call to hope here from the psalmist in verse 3 is a call to humility for the long haul and a refusal to be prideful or presumptuous. We're meant to persist in our hope um, and to trust in the Lord until our last breath. The great reformer John Calvin writes, It's the servant of God who desireth to persevere to the end. He must wait on God in the way of humility and hope in him unto the end. He's a humble man who in the sense of his sins and infirmities standeth in awe of God, keepeth himself within the bounds of his calling and commission, renounceth all confidence in his own wit, and submitted to God's dealing, and hoped to be helped by God in all things, as he standeth in need. Calvin here identifies that the humble man who waits on God until the end has these four characteristics. He understands his sins and infirmities, and stands amazed daily at God's mercy and grace. He keeps himself and his thoughts within what the Lord has called and brought him to. He doesn't trust in his own wit or understanding, but asks the Lord for help. And he submits to God's providential dealings with his life to provide for his needs, knowing that God works all things for his good. Last night as I was continuing to study and prepare for this morning, I wrote those four things down on a note card and placed them next to my desk as a daily reminder to check in with my soul to see how my soul is doing, to see if I was cultivating a calm and quiet soul that's occupied in the Lord and his purposes that day. Now this practice to persist in, it's not always going to be easy. There's going to be dark and stormy seasons of the soul where it's hard to see that bright sliver of hope through the clouds. And you're not going to be able to do it alone. You'll need a community of Christians around you who are committed to walking the path of godliness together as a church. They can't carry your personal responsibility to calm and quiet your own soul for you. But as one of my favorite counselors once told me, Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings, as he once told me, I can't carry it for you, Frodo, but I can carry you. So this community is here to walk alongside one another, and sometimes we take our turns carrying one another through seasons of life as we all grow in grace and humility together. May we as a church family continually encourage one another to set our gaze upon the Lord, because he is why we have much reason to hope. So how is your soul doing this morning? Do you have a calm and a quiet soul that's occupied with the Lord and His purposes? Or is your heart lifted up in pride and you find yourself dwelling on things that the Lord has never promised that He would reveal to you? Now, if that's the case, come back. Revisit David's instruction example here in Psalm 131. But don't just stop there. Then turn your gaze to Christ the greater David, the king who sat on David's royal throne, who never acted in pride or arrogance, but always counted others more significant than himself. Look to Christ, who didn't count equality with God, thing to be grasped, 
but came as a servant, humbling himself. Look to Christ who is committed not to fulfilling his own desires, but completing his Father's will unto the very end, even dying on a cross. And finally, look to, our, look to Christ, our hope, who now sits in heaven, where he will remain forever, caring for us and our souls until he returns. And when he returns, we'll all be gathered together, continuing to sing his glories, as our hope will be complete. And we'll see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the souls, the people in this building this morning, those who are listening. Father, I pray that our souls would be at rest, that we would calm, quiet our souls, that we'd be content with the lot that you have given us, knowing that you care for us and you've never left us without something that we've needed. Father, I pray for those who are like me and struggle with pride, presumption, Father, I pray that we would know that our success in this area is not by being perfect each day, but are we pursuing humility by your grace, by your strength, through the power of your spirit. And Father, I pray that this church would gather around one another, that we walk with one another as we pursue this humility that the Lord loves. So Father, we pray that you would be honored, glorified, by the dealings, by the thoughts, by the stirrings of our souls this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.